The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the UC Board of Regents, or Jean Gretz or Kim Folsom. Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the December 22nd, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader. Let's start this show right away. My guest for the full hour is Jose Serrano with World Relief, the Orange County, Southern California chapter, to consider how much room there is at the inn, the U.S. inn, that is. He's going to offer insight as to how World Relief will resume immigration services amidst changes that he envisions are possible with immigration policy as it may shift under new management. Jose is Associate Director of Immigration and Outreach, Senior Immigration Services Specialist in the Garden Grove office, which is the Southern California headquarters for World Relief. He is a Department of Justice, a credit representative working a decade there toward practicing all aspects of immigration. Jose has resettled over 600 refugees from Syria, Iraq, Iran, Uganda, Burma, Afghanistan, Armenia, and Russia, and represented dozens of asylum seekers in their immigration proceedings. As an advocate for vulnerable populations, Jose collaborates in refugee forums in Orange and Los Angeles counties. He chairs the State Advisory Council on Refugee Assistance and Services and works to build inclusive communities for new Americans in Southern California. Jose's own experience is emigrating to the U.S. as a child living without status for nearly 20 years and helping navigate systems for his parents and immigrant community. He graduated with a Bachelor's of Arts in Political Science with International Studies major and a Chicano Chicana Studies major and a minor in Education. He comes to us today from his home in Santa Ana. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Jose Serrano. Thank you for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. Well, we're all reaching down deep about this room in the end theme, the theme that is a kind of a round the year thing. So when I look around about world relief is who you are, who all does that include? And you're chartered it briefly so that we can understand the sort of interfaith relationships of your organization, Jose. Yes, excellent. It's a wonderful question that you bring up because it really does sum up what we do at, at our office. And our mission is to empower the local church to stand alongside its most vulnerable, not stand before or in front. Vulnerable to us are refugees, immigrants, individuals who've been displaced, individuals who are marginalized and oftentimes are not uh, seen as people, especially when there are powers or systems put in place that really just make them invisible. And so our objective is to bring the church, and, and the church is not only like the entity, the Christian church, but it's the community of people who believe in God, who come together. So that could be anyone from a Muslim background. It could be someone from Christian background. It could be someone from the Jewish community 
it's really bringing everyone together to walk alongside refugees and immigrants. And um, that's our mission. And, and given the challenges that many refugees and immigrants encounter here in the United States due to the lack of opportunities through channels that would ultimately enable them to become citizens, we firmly believe that we need to really create change. And we start with the local church, uh, bringing the local church, providing awareness and education so that we can better understand sort of what are the systems that really need to change in order for people to have a chance at becoming citizens. So maybe the church is sort of the entity by which you can receive your, you're one of nine sort of large umbrella organizations that receives U.S. government funding for refugees, nine groups around the country. So maybe the church is sort of the way to receive the funding that supports what you do. Yeah, the World Relief as an entity is uh, one of nine resettlement mother organizations that resettle refugees, which means that we help with the integration process, uh, with the guidance, uh, providing them support. And support is both monetary all the way through to like helping someone navigate the systems in the United States. That means helping their children enroll in school, helping them create a resume to find a job. It's all of those things. But I think it's more than just a channel or a pathway towards resettlement. We firmly believe that the church being an entity that firmly believes that people should be loved like ourselves, right? That we should love our neighbor. I think it's the perfect place to really create welcome. And given the polarization and the rhetoric around who immigrants are and refugees and, and how oftentimes they are scapegoated for a lot of different things in the United States, that's an inaccurate representation of who they are. And as Christians and as entity who firmly believes in empowering that local church and that's empowering everyone in the community, it is important to create that educational opportunity. Otherwise, uh, what ends up happening is people start firmly believing that refugees are at fault for a lot of things in the United States or immigrants. And once again, that's an inaccurate representation of who refugees and immigrants are. Also, uh, as Christians or people who believe in God, we're not necessarily following God's word where we need to love our, our thy neighbor, you know? And so we're more than just the resettlement agency. It's really an educational opportunity in putting love into action. So when you were helping your own family, we know that lots of the offspring are instrumental in helping parents, helping family navigate resettlement. Were you a beneficiary yourself of a world relief type organization or the world relief? Um, it's been around since after World War II, I understand, but was it some kind of aid you received at the time your family was getting settled here safely? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, one of the important things to really understand is that within the integration or welcome of immigrants, um, not immigrants are made the same, right? Meaning they don't all have the same opportunities. Refugee resettlement is an opportunity where individuals apply abroad. And again, it's a, it's a very difficult and challenging process. You actually have to flee your country of origin, go to a different country where there's a United Nations human rights 
Commissioners for Refugees program available and then apply and then wait up to 20 years in order to come to a resettlement agency or an organization or a country that will welcome you, right? That's just one process of immigration, but not everyone has that opportunity to become a refugee. Within my family, unfortunately, there was no pathway towards residency or citizenship at the moment. And so we found ourselves undocumented in the United States. And one of the difficult experiences that we've encountered is we didn't have the system or entity that would help guide our parents, my siblings, and really create an environment of welcome. Uh, if anything, it was the contrary. I often felt very much marginalized, um, like I didn't belong. And actually that feeling kind of continued even after I became a resident. And even as a U.S. citizen, just feeling like this country wasn't made for me, uh, even though immigrants are highly contributing to the United States, right? Uh, right. They are the essential workers that we are seeing working day in and day out to make sure that families are staying alive, that families are able to work from home because they're the ones working in the fields, uh, working in the medical fields, uh, in fields meaning crops and agricultural area, right? So we can have food on the table. But we didn't have these, these opportunities. And so as a person who at five, six years old was helping my parents navigate these systems, this has become natural for me to really just care for another person, to put myself in their shoes and help them create a pathway or help them navigate systems or really see their full potential and create a place of welcome here in the U.S. Um, since it's ultimately going to be their new home. And so um, that's ultimately what I do. I, I love helping people because every time I see someone who's an immigrant or a refugee, I really see myself and the times where I was struggling and there was nobody there to help me or my family. Yes, and, and forgive me, Jose, it's, uh, it is apparent that there are some programs in place that were not in your early childhood. So World Relief is going to receive people that fit the criteria for a resettled refugee. And that's so many undocumented members of our community don't have all, and that's why you're saying that there's so many different pathways, but in, there were fewer pathways back in the day when your family relocated here. From right. which country, if I may ask? So I, I'm Mexican actually. And so I think one of the important things is even now, uh, if we if we stay relevant and local, um, you know, there's been thousands and thousands of families seeking asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border, many of which have been denied that opportunity through the different systems and programs that have been put in place, like the Remain in Mexico policy that forces people to stay in Mexico, even though asylum law says that you're able to request asylum in another country. But for a lot of Mexican nationals, that's not really a pathway. And so I think what becomes really challenging is you're always asked or told, why don't you wait in line? But the reality is there's no line to wait in. Right. The <laughs> turnstile's jammed up. Right. And so we really need to discuss that and, and yes. really dig into the, the systems that are put in place and the policies that are created that don't create an opportunity for someone to become a legal resident or a citizen in the United States. So when we roll back the clock to January of 2017, the White House came out, you know, all guns whirling, and you saw there's going to be a quick, persistent ratcheting down of options for an asylum seeker or any kind of refugee to make their way to safety inside the U.S. So what was it like? What were you observing come January 2017? And Stephen Miller is whispering the most obscene things into the president's ear about just going full bore with 
closing off the asylum in every single aspect. What was your sort of personal organizational response to, oh, this is not going to go well for an interminable time, it would feel like? Great question. Well, just pause for a second and I am. Imagine imagine yourself right now. The holidays are around the corner. You just came to the United States. You were able to gain that entry as a refugee, but not everyone in your family was able to come in immediately. You still have uncles, cousins, your mother who's ill, who is in a refugee camp abroad, who's awaiting to enter the United States. And now there's an administration that's going to completely prevent her from coming in. Policies like Muslim ban have been created. Reduction in number of refugee arrivals. Different USCIS entities that do the interview process abroad for refugees have been closed. All of these systems, mechanisms, just completely destruction of, of the systems that have been in place that would enable refugees to come to the United States have been destroyed. And all of a sudden, that person you've, you love and care for is not able to come to the United States. And we had calls. Our phones were ringing. My mother is so in, in this place. Can you check on her? When can she come in? Just the fear and panic of, of what could happen. And the reality is that it did happen. And it was even worse than what we thought. We started refugee resettlement with the previous administration with 110,000 refugees and a little bit more than that to 15,000 set for this fiscal year. I mean, look at that. One of those individuals could have been your parent. One of those individuals could have been your child. We have some families, I, I can think of one right now, an Iraqi family. The elderly parents resettle here with their two of their children and, and then another individual, their daughter is abroad. And unfortunately, dad just passed away. And so did the brother-in-law passed away. So this child was never able to see her father again. This child was never ever to see their brother-in-law again. That is just beyond inhumane. These are scars that are going to take years to heal. Right. All big people in leadership that are anti-immigrant, anti-refugee, who care more about power than actual people themselves. <sighs> For those of you who've just joined us, I would like to reintroduce my guest, Jose Serrano, Associate Director of Immigration and Outreach Senior Immigration Services Specialist and a Department of Justice fully accredited representative. Jose is able to practice law on behalf of these resettled refugees. And we know that there is a huge security matter motivating so many households. There's so many reasons. And in the interest of time, I guess I just want to leave that feature there for people to ponder that is the reason why They've made their way this far through so much difficulty, but I do want to give Jose an opportunity to talk about all the services in the Southern California region. And if you would, Jose, talk about this in the context of the decline of refugees, because it just, as you said, it went from 110,000 to 15,000 per year to almost zero in, in some of the programs, case I understand. So talk about that in the context of the decline of the refugees and in the context of the pandemic. 
Yes, yes. So unfortunately, um, a lot of resettlement agencies closed down. Um, our office had over uh, two dozen offices nationwide, nationally, and uh, we closed about five offices throughout the United States. Unfortunately, our program for refugee resettlement also came to an end, given the number of refugees that were ultimately resettled within the last few years. There were certain offices whose main job in order for them to be sustainable and stay open was refugee resettlement. And so given that World Relief Southern California has two types of services, um, I mean, we offer more than two types of services, but the main services are or refugee resettlement, and then also immigration legal services, which is interconnected to refugee resettlement, but mm-hmm. it's, it's its own program, um, which I will share a little bit about in a few seconds. But in order for other offices to stay alive, if, for lack of a better word, we close on our program and focus mostly on the providing immigration legal services to the community in California. And so, yes. Which could I, be for a person, of uh, there'd be mixed status families. It could be a person with no documentation or a person with a green card. It could be anybody, right? That is correct. So when we talk about immigration legal services, it's providing legal assessments to individuals who want to become residents. It's individuals who want to be go from residents to citizens. It's individuals who might have a refugee question related to a petition abroad. Uh, It could be someone who's a DACA recipient trying to renew their status. It could be a, uh, meaning renew their DACA because DACA is not necessarily a status if I can correct myself. DACA, it's a benefit. It's not a status. Okay, important. Like residency is a status or citizenship is a status or a temporary uh, correction status, right? Or a non-immigrant visa. So someone who's a tourist or a student visa holder, those are types of status, but deferred action, it's a protection. Um, So we want to make sure we're clear about that, that people don't think this is status because it's not really creating a pathway towards anything. And the only benefit it's protection, quote unquote, from deportation, which we know that's not necessarily always true. So, but yes, those are the types of, of services we provide. I think given the number, the 11 million plus, right, of individuals who aren't found in the United States being contributors to the economy, to our families by either, you know, taking care of our children, taking care of our lawns, and beyond that, right? A lot of these individuals, I I also want to make sure that they're not just gardeners or folks picking up crops in the fields. A lot of these individuals were teachers or doctors professionals in their home country of origin, but unfortunately, um, there's been glass ceilings that have been created, and also the systems that are in place that have prevented them from really putting their titles and their skills in practice. So these folks maybe have never had the opportunity to get a legal assessment, because I think something to discuss that's also important is Immigration attorneys charge a lot for consultations. Uh, well, there's the paperwork and then there's the legal representation that's money that none of those households even have a start to pay for. Exactly. So even just to give you a, a brief example, you know, uh, and to share a little bit more, my parents, just to make it personal, okay. uh, my parents became residents about three to four years ago, right? If they were to have gone to an attorney, if I wasn't practicing law at the moment, um, if they were to gone to an attorney, just for their representation, it would have been between an average of about $5,000 to $8,000 just for the representation. 
For right? them as a couple or per person too? For them Just, as a couple, for them okay. as a couple. Wow. In, in addition to about 2,300, 2,500 individually for immigration filing fees. So when you add up eight plus five, what do we get? 13? That's a lot of money. When their average income a year together, it's no more than about $50,000, $60,000. And I think something to really look into that is just like, how are the lack of upper mobility? Sometimes there's a lot of fraud within the immigration legal representation system from notarios, which a lot of the, the families don't know. They, they trust fully a, a representative who has a title. And so oftentimes they're brainwashed into believing that they have a pathway towards residency or citizenship. And there's an eagerness. You know, I think something to really shed light on is oftentimes there's a discussion that people want to be here illegally or people don't want to have status. The reality is people don't not want to be illegally. People right. want to be residents. People want to be citizens. There's just not an opportunity. And so sometimes out of the eagerness to become a resident, to obtain a work authorization or a social security, people are taken advantage of. And ultimately, instead of actually fixing their status, they're putting a pipeline towards deportation. And so all of these different things that where there's already a vulnerable population that's being taken advantage of, that is just a horrible thing. And so that's where World Relief Southern California exists. Our objective is to provide very, very, very low-cost services for immigration legal assessment and representation or no cost at all. And I would dare say that 99% of the time, well, 90 to 95% of the time, yeah. uh, most services are free. Uh, there are uh, institutions where individuals come in and they're like, we, we really like you. We were referred to you. The, the family ends up having some funds. And so we, we charge them, but it's no near what an attorney would cost. And also, I don't want to like... Uh, shame attorneys because attorneys work hard for, for you know, in going to law school and, and paying bills and all those things. But, you know, not everyone, unfortunately, when it comes to trying to obtain residency has those kind of funds. And so there are people who could pay that. And that is fantastic. I really encourage them to find appropriate legal counsel with an attorney. And then there's just individuals that even if they wanted to hire an attorney and pay them the $8,000 for representation, they just don't have that type of money. And so that's our objective. And so we do a lot of, apart from legal representation, we do community outreach. We talk about know your rights. Even immigrants have rights. That's something that we should always know. We also do education with the community members and stakeholders like uh, unified school districts. That includes also even police enforcement or any other entity that is found in our community that might need to better understand who are immigrants, where do they come from, what's their cultural identity, how do we best serve them given that they are contributing members of our communities. Well, say this makes me think of the barriers sort of snowballed in the last four years. There's also another headwind in the kind of social media disinformation saturating a hostile public, mythologizing what people are doing here. Is it palpable to you when you're doing that community outreach you're talking about that you can hear that the messages have been solidifying a very hostile notion about refugee seekers in, you know, in our midst, in our community. You know what's interesting? Something that we saw a lot is that when you have power and you have the, the systems to really create a story or a narrative about someone and people trust you as a person of authority, in this case, a person who is the president of the United States and its administration, 
people look up to you, right? Whether it's in a positive way or a negative way, people are looking at you, period. And I think given who his cabinet is and the policies that were drafted and even just the very simple conversations with citizens of the United States or the people of the United States about who immigrants were. And, and you know, and these are words that, that the president said, people from whole countries, right? Uh, people who, if you're Mexican, you're a rapist, right? I am Mexican. I am not a rapist. I am Mexican. I am not a criminal. Like all of these different things that he said and then associated immigrants with, people start believing. People start getting afraid. And, and I don't blame them for their fear. As people, I think when you don't know something, if your source of information is an entity that produces so much fear, you're going to believe that fear and that fear is going to become true to you. And so our objective as World Relief is to really share the truth. We're not a political organization. Our goal is to really share the facts. And we do that through different ways. And so uh, the educational component, whether it's through Know Your Rights, whether it's just talking about the pathways and policies that are created, really start making people think critically about the information that they're getting because that information often is flawed. And if it's not only flawed, it's also hurtful. It's used as an armed force, as a weapon to really destroy someone, but not only destroy them, right? And and take away their dignity and humanity, but also put people against them. Because I think what ends up happening is that when you become fearful of something, your ultimate goal is either run away from it or fight it. And I think what we've seen is people are fighting it and they're fighting immigrants, they're fighting refugees, they're fighting people who are more like them than not. And so it is really important to, especially during this administration, I think there's been a lot of hurts that's been done. And now, you know, I I hope with with the Biden-Harris administration that there's a lot of healing that takes place. Well, I want to talk about that development. I'd like to continue right with the status quo that we're dealing with right now with the services that you're rendering. And you had to put on hold the border tours that you brought because Tijuana is, it's the most traveled portal uh, along the U.S.-Mexican border, but maybe it's even a more active port of entry than anywhere in the country. I would dare say so. I think given um, the, the close proximity to, you know, being a, like you said, a, a port of entry, a tunnel or pathway uh, to exit, right? A lot of, especially within within California, a lot of its citizens, residents, uh, inhabitants being uh, of Mexican nationality or background, or even it just connects to the Americas, right? right the rest right. of the Americas, the Central America, the South America, and that whole region, it's a very tragic traveled uh, location, not only for folks who migrate back and forth, but also for individuals who want to seek safety. As you mentioned, the, the, the border initiative was started, even going back to your first story about like shedding light and truth when a, there's, there's a narrative or story being told about uh, refugees and immigrants and, and it's not a story that it's it's a positive one. And so we really wanted to construct that and retell that story with facts of, about who refugees and immigrants, who, who they really are. And so- Person to person there. Yeah, the border initiative was really good. Uh, we started that in 2018 uh, when we saw the influx of Central American, South American, and not only that region- And African laborers coming through Americas. Yes, Cameroonians, lots of Cameroonians, lots of Haitians, folks from Russia, folks from the Middle East. I mean, 
there's hundreds and hundreds of people coming in. It's not only folks from Central America or Mexico or South America. It's people from all over the world who were seeking protection. And they still are. It just happens to be that we are in a global pandemic. And then also the policies shifted so drastically that it completely almost obliterated asylum law in the United States. And so the Border Initiative was really to educate the community, educate the church, or educate anyone who wanted to learn more about who refugees are, wanted to know more about how do you serve, how do you help, uh, given that we were going on with the current administration that was very anti-immigrant and anti-refugee and completely destroying the very little pathway that existed for individuals to seek asylum. And once again, this goes back to the idea of like, Immigrants are our neighbors, therefore we should love our neighbor, you know? Tis the season. So Jose, though, will there be a resumption of the border tours and the border initiative program when the pandemic has subsided? Or is it a matter of immigration policy changing? Does it all have to be overcome, overtaken, so that that kind of program can be an education to privileged people who have no idea? Right. You know, I think we don't necessarily have to drive a few hundred miles away to the border okay. during a pandemic to really learn about what's taking place. I think going there, it's a wonderful experience if the opportunity is made available. And I encourage anyone once this pandemic is over to really reach out um, and just to visit and, and be with the community and really learn and hear from the stories, the cries for help from the folks who are seeking asylum. I think it's a wonderful experience, not for like the sake of like, oh, let's just go on a, on a tour, right? But really to feel the humanity be in, in community, hear again, once again, the stories of resilience, persecution, unfortunately. But I think during this pandemic, I, something that I've seen a lot of organizations do and the world is changing, we need to be innovative. We can't just forget that there's no asylum seekers at the border seeking asylum. The reality is that they are there. It just means that the doors have been shut down. And so I think we can still do a virtual border experience, right? Okay. We can still talk about policies. We can still talk about the stories of displacement without needing to be there. So that's something that we're, we're, we're having a conversation about and still doing a border experience without having churches to really go there. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you go there and your heart is not changed. The reality is like you need to learn the policy, you need to understand systems, understand just how the systems that are created really uh, limit people from pursuing that American dream and even having access to residency and citizenship. And so once we learn that, I think people will be moved and really see what needs to be done in order to change these things. So one of the other services of the many is your participation in the citizenship fairs. They were once a monthly <laughs> um, a, a workshop, and then it started to pare down. I think we raced to get one more in, was it December of 2019, before the fee waiver for the paperwork was going to end. So right. what do you see as a resumption? And and I, I want you to know, our listeners have heard about some of the citizenship fairs from the OCORD representatives that have been my guests, as well as Gary Joseph has certainly painted lots of pictures about what's going on at the border too. So they're they're all up to speed if they're paying if they're if they're paying regular attention here, which I'm I'm assuming. But when do you see us getting back to a regular citizenship fair, assuming that there will be an opening up of asylum processing and that there will be an incentive 
for a green card holder to go through all of this paperwork and using all the resources and everything. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of, uh, again, just similar to how I discussed the rhetoric, the narrative that is told, the lies about who immigrants and refugees are. I think similar to individuals who are residents on a pathway towards citizenship, the pathway that exists has been completely, uh, I don't want to say eradicated, but definitely a lot of different obstacles have been put in place. And one of them is with the high fee increases, which currently is on hold. But it doesn't mean that folks aren't afraid. And so I think oftentimes right. what ends up happening is that when there's a lot of conversation and discussion, a lot of media that talks about there's going to be a fee increase, people start feeling afraid and they stop reaching out to organizations. And oftentimes what ends up happening is they just stay with that same status for a really long time because they're like, well, the fee's high now. I can't pay for it. And therefore, I just can't apply. And so just to, for the record, the fee has not been put in place yet. There has been, one of the courts decided to, to, to put it on hold uh, to further review. And so individuals can still apply. Individuals can still also request the fee waiver. Oh, they can. Okay. At the moment, yes. So even though the goal was to put it in place, right, that's, that was Department of Homeland Security's objective. The truth is that was put on hold. So there is a district judge that um, put that policy on hold for the moment or, or new law that would go into effect regarding uh, fee increases. And so the fee increases have not taken place yet, but they could. So I would encourage anyone who's a resident to apply for citizenship as quick as possible. Also, individuals who want a waiver can still request that waiver. Okay. So the, there was coverage about just the Department of Homeland Security was just slowing down processing of the citizenship paperwork. So what can you impart to us is the situation at this point? Yeah, and I think one of, one of the other reasons people are afraid, not afraid, but maybe just disillusioned, lost hope, is when, when they call and ask, like, how long is the process to become a citizen? Well, we have a pandemic. There were conversations about fee increases. There was conversations about changing the test and exam. For it's instance, changed. Which has changed. That has effectively have happened. And so all of these different things that have been put in place really scare people. Because again, it's being afraid of the unknown. And during this current situation, and, you know, and there was also a lot of like furloughs happening with uh, USCIS officers, where the presidency wanted to completely dismantle USCIS, which is the entity that processes citizenship applications. And so when you have all of that happening simultaneously, well, people feel like, well, what's the goal? What's the objective if they don't even want me here? Again, it's creating policies that really make you feel like you don't belong. And they do that so well, unfortunately, that it really discourages people from wanting to be a part of this country. We always talk about like, why aren't they American? Why don't they integrate? Well, we're creating actually policies that don't want them to become American. And so, unfortunately, it is taking a little longer to become a citizen for the moment, but I would encourage you, it doesn't matter if it takes 10 years, five years, only a few months, you should always strive to becoming a citizen. And the reason <laughs> is because you, there's always that, um, you can vote, you can exercise that power and that right. And I think given what we've seen before, where we've seen an administration that completely disregarded the Supreme Court of the land, which is the constitution, we cannot have this happen again. 
we really need to be vigilant and aware of who is the people that are running to, to represent us as citizens and inhabitants of this nation. And so if you're a resident, I encourage you to apply. If you're a resident and are low income, you're probably eligible for some kind of fee waiver for your application fee. But as Claudia mentioned before, there is a change in, in the number of questions. It's gotten from 100. And the type. The, there are some monumental changes to questions that the sense of the question is off. It's I, I, I don't have an example, unfortunately. Maybe you have examples of how those yes. civics questions changed. And I could challenge most native-born Americans to pass adequately that test. But do you have some examples? Yeah, one of them that's really interesting that we looked at, it's something around like, uh, when did men get the right to vote? Or who were the first men to get the yes, right to vote? Yes, exactly. We're like, really? <laughs> wow. <laughs> but I guess, you know, that's a perfect example of who this administration is. That it's, it's really working and targeting like white male Protestant men who have money. It's going back to pre-civil rights movement. It's going back it's definitely going back to the starting of this nation where not everyone was created equal. It's, it's a times of slavery. It's a time where women are oppressed. It's a time where also not all men had the right to vote, only white male who own property. And I think they really want to shove that in your mouth and say, and, and in your head and be like, this is who we're talking about when we're talking about America. And I completely disagree with that. I, I believe that America that I know is, is a land of opportunity, is a country that can welcome everyone. It's a country where we can all succeed, where it's not at the expense of somebody else's like failure uh, in order for somebody else to do great. I firmly believe that everyone has, could have an opportunity and create a America, uh, the United States, meaning the United States of America, uh, a place of, of refuge and shelter and home. It's not only for white males who own land who can call themselves Americans. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest today is Jose Serrano. He's Associate Director of Immigration and Outreach senior immigration services specialist and a Department of Justice fully accredited representative with the World Relief Southern California office. And when we're talking about the processing of a path to citizenship, the public charge rule, was that an executive order that was dealing with if you were to receive some kind of public services, you would not be eligible for this pathway to citizenship? I think, was that an executive order that could be remedied with a reversal of that and a removal of that executive order, Jose? It was not an executive order, but it was a policy that was put into place, but it's not in place right now. <laughs> that, policy, <laughs> that policy went into effect uh, sometime in February, and then it got shut down by a court, and then one got reinstated, and then got shut down again by another court, and it's reinstated, and then it got shut down again. So currently, it's not in effect but again, people are still afraid. And people who are residents think that this applies to them. It applies only to some residents if they were to like leave the country, request for benefits, and be abroad while they're requesting benefits for more than six months. But the, again, the idea is it's preventing people, again, from becoming residents and citizens of the well, well, and Jose, I hasten to also add that the confounding aspect of something like that where people would not receive health services in a pandemic 
How, That's correct. How lethal can that be for anybody involved in the, I'm thinking community-wide, everybody. Well, one thing I want to establish, does World Relief have the ability to lobby for policies and policy so changes? We, we, yeah, that's a really great question. We don't have a lobbying per se. Uh, we're, we're a 501c3 organization, but we do advocacy and advocacy looks like many different ways. One of them is through education and outreach and mobilizing the church to really know what is taking place and sort of what kind of systems are in place. You know, when we're we're talking about loving thy neighbor and like God standing for the most vulnerable and all of those things that are that are so great in the Bible and the teachings of who we should be as human beings. But for some reason, someone who calls themselves a Christian who takes it away from a bishop at a church, right, and poses for a photo and starts creating policies that separate families at the border, public charge, which really scares people, and they're not seeking the health services made available to them as citizens because their children are citizens, because they're afraid that they might be deported. Like all of these different things that are very anti-God. That's not who we are. And, and, and part of our lobbying, I guess, or our, our advocacy, it's through education. We do have folks at headquarters and just even within the different organizations of World Relief throughout the United States that meet with local representatives, meet with you federal. Do. We do, yes. Yeah. So for example, you know, our, our previous office director, Glenn Peterson, prior to this pandemic and just 2020, right? We've met multiple times with current uh, now Vice President-elect Kamala Harris at her office. And she really sat down and, and learned from Muslim ban and how it was impacting our refugees who are, were coming here as special immigrant visa holders. These are individuals who were stopped at port of entry simply because they had perhaps a Muslim sounding name or an Islamic name. They were not necessarily from any of the, of the countries Afghanistan, it's not a country that's listed on the Muslim ban. And yet they were put on hold at port of entry in LAX for hours and hours, like eight hours. We had a case where, unfortunately, now she passed away um, after being diagnosed with stage four cancer, where she was in Iraqi national uh, and, and was coming in as a resident. And she was put on hold also for hours needing the medications she desperately needed in order for her to make sure that you know that that cancer would go away unfortunately she lost her battle earlier this year but but policies like these that are just destroying people and so our objective is to really educate people and so we do have organization or leaders and in dc because our, our our headquarters is in maryland who are testifying before congress who okay. are working with the National Evangelical Roundtable. Those are different ways where we can educate the church and lobby that way to speak to representatives, to mobilize communities where they live, to welcome refugees. For a while, there were a lot of um, individuals, Texas being the one that was leading this, where they were creating memos or policies where if the state local and federal representatives in your state didn't agree to refugee resettlement, then nobody can be resettled there. I mean, come on, yeah. you know? And so our goal again is to really shed light on what is taking place. So are you, Jose, hopeful about post-January 20th, 2021? You know, unless we change hearts, we won't get far. And But I am very hopeful. Um, I think the education still needs to continue. I think people are still afraid, right? As mentioned before, 
with the current administration who's soon going to be leaving the White House, there was just a lot of fear that was instilled in the lives of people living in the United States. There was a lot of false truths, false truths meaning uh, there were a lot of things were, that were not necessarily true that people believed as truth. There was a lot of destruction and dismantling of programs and systems like refugee resettlement, asylum, even pathway towards citizenship. There's also a lot of restoration that needs to be done with the dignity and, and humanity of a lot of folks, including folks who are African-American or Black, uh, Indigenous mm -hmm. communities, just a lot of folks in, in the margins or who've uh, been denied their right to life, liberty, and, and pursuit of happiness. And so all of that still needs to happen, but I, I am very hopeful. And I think one of the reasons why I'm very hopeful is because even just now with uh, the initial filing of DACA's, right, that could take place, I'm just like, oh my gosh, like this is something that has been contested for over eight, four years, just back and forth. And even after the, the Supreme Court, which is the, the supreme law of the land, said, hey, restoration needs to take place. We, we didn't deny DACA. We felt that the presidency didn't take the appropriate route to dismantle it but DACA still exists, USCIS didn't do anything about it. It's like they disregarded exactly what the Supreme Court said regarding DACA and never an opportunity for individuals to apply as initial applicants. And so recently a, a federal judge uh, mandated that DHS, which is a part of USCIS or USCIS is under DHS, Department of Homeland Security, that opportunity has been created and that window has been opened. And so we know that there's still a, a Texas court case that is taking place regarding DACA um, that is being heard by the Supreme Court, but we're remaining hopeful that the opportunity for initial DACA applicants, were, which are essential workers, these are the, the kids who are young adults and professionals who are, you know, working in the medical fields, right? Taking care of our family or relatives who are sick or folks in during this pandemic. And so that's something that's been just like a sign of hope. Just to share a little bit, we did an info session. So just like a general education on what is the current state of DACA. We had over 300 people sign up to listen to it. Wow. We've had parents call in, hey, I'm so-and-so, my son is 15, my daughter's 17, we want to learn about DACA, how do we apply? The calls, are, our lines have been just ringing left and right. And that is really exciting. I think that really instills hope for a lot of folks, even if the parents still don't have a pathway towards residency and citizenship, which is something we should definitely also focus with this administration. Also, I've seen, uh, you know, there's a lot of leaders that, President-elect Biden has chosen to be a part of his cabinet, which is exciting and rejuvenating. Um, and it's people that might look like me, that might look like you, or that is more, uh, I would say, a reflection of who we are as a nation, hopefully, than just a, a certain type of group who is trying to cater to a certain need in, in the White House. I think the only complexity with all of this is COVID and the pandemic, but that's also exciting too, because there is, it seems to be some kind of things changing related to just immunizations and the opportunity to hopefully prevent this pandemic from continuing to take away so many lives. So I, I, I'm very hopeful, I'm excited. Are there gonna be challenges? Yes. Is it going to be difficult? Yes. Is it impossible to create welcome and restoration? No. I think restoration, welcome, and just moving more towards a more kind and welcoming America 
is possible. And that is possible through people who are even listening to this conversation that we are having or who are willing to share this conversation with somebody else who might not be so interested. And I think all it takes is listening as the initial step to create change. So we're talking a great deal about national level, federal leadership, but how much does Sheriff Barnes, Sheriff Villanueva, and the police chiefs around Southern California, how much do they have to say the kind of discretion they have to work with immigration and customs enforcement? That's, a, that's an excellent question. And I think that's something that has that, that's being discussed actually, especially here in Orange County. Systems change, power, where is that power found? It's not only at the federal government. It's also found at the state. It's found in the communities. It's found in counties. Unfortunately, Board of Supervisors is not a representation of Orange County. That's the fact. It's not a representation of hardworking immigrants, both documented and undocumented. It's not a representation of the diversity that exists here. And so those are things that need to change because it's not a service to the state or to the county that we live in. It's actually a disservice. And so to the pandemic point you're talking about that you're hopeful, Jose, I'm really concerned. We're recording this on December 18th and the COVID cases are surging exponentially. ICU capacity is all maxed out. Deaths are now exponentially increasing as well we have what are known as long haulers. They have recovered to some extent from COVID, but the overrepresentation of Latinos and Blacks, they're overrepresented in the cases of COVID. So those long haulers are going to be confounded likely the rest of their lives while they're trying to work some kind of resettlement path. That's a tall order to work with all of that. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, even something that's like super important, again, you know, talking about just system changes and just the, the representation and who we are and the very narrow idea of what an immigrant is from representatives or former board of super supervisors um, and who are still leaders. It's all very interconnected. And the reason I say that it's because we have a really large number of individuals, especially within the Latino community, who are essential workers, who cannot be home and stay with their children. They're out there working jobs so that, again, like I mentioned before, so that we can eat. They're the ones driving around bringing our foods. They're the ones at grocery stores selling items. They don't have that luxury to stay at home. And so when we don't create systems that allow everyone to have that opportunity when a pandemic hits to really preserve their survival, like preserve their health, when only that's made available to certain people, that's a problem. And we can see that right now. And I think a lot of folks are probably undocumented too. Right. And when you don't have, when you don't create, for example, health, that's something that's been attacked left and right the whole administration, right? When you don't have access to preventative care, we're going to see these high number of people who've been infected who unfortunately don't make it because that was never an option made available. We did create opportunity. I would dare say that people would be more able to stay home. People would be able to preserve their health. People would, even if they did get the disease, perhaps because of their history of making sure that they visited the doctor, that they were eating healthy, that they had access to nutritious foods, 
Like maybe all of those things would have prevented the virus from taking their lives. But unfortunately, again, we're not all created equal. That's something that really needs to be looked into. And it needs to be looked into by activists, needs to be looked into by policymakers, it needs to, it needs to be looked into by folks who are doing education. It needs to be looked at by individuals like you who are shedding light on what is taking place, what is local. In order for us to live a more prosperous life, we really need to change systems and systems that really benefit everyone, not just the rich not just people in power, not just people that look a certain way or based on their color of skin. And so with COVID, COVID is it, an illness, it's a virus, and it, it doesn't attack you based on your race or ethnicity or the color of skin, it attacks everyone. But I think COVID has also really shown the number of, or shed even more light into how different, what's accessible to some communities and what is not to others, right? Disparities and sharp relief, absolutely. Exactly. So Jose, how would you like folks to get a hold of you for those who are requesting help or those that would like to help? Yes, thank you, Claudia. Old relief. So there's two ways. And I can also share even how you can get involved. Um, so you can always call us at 714-210-4730. Um, if anybody's seeking a consultation, please note that all of our consultations are via Zoom or telephonic just to make sure that we, again, uh, are taking care of people, right? And, and are you able to handle, I mean, do you have enough staff right now or is that sort of dwindled down do. a little bit? You we can handle every call coming in. Yes, we have um, about seven practitioners who practice immigration law and maybe you might not get an appointment that same day, but maybe within a few days or weeks, um, okay. you'll be able to get that assessment. I also, if, if this is not necessarily for you, please share our contact information. That's always really helpful. I think sometimes what's been really interesting to me, and it's also very beautiful, is where you'll have a, a family where they're like, well, uh, you know, my parents immigrated to the United States in the like 1600s or 1500s. I've been here forever. Um, I don't really have a history to migration anymore. But they're the, the person that works with them, you know, whether it's a person taking care of their child or taking care of their home. My not have status and they come alongside of them and they're advocating for them. And so I, I really want you to, to be that person, that good Samaritan right now, not just because it's a season of giving and a season of kindness, but because that's who we should be all the time. So definitely share our contact information. You can also go to our website at worldrelievesoutherncalifornia.org and you can find more about who we are and the organization. Um, there's also a link to um, giving. Something that you should be aware of is that we are a nonprofit. The reason we are able to help people and serve the community is because of supports and contributions for people like you who really make this possible. And I think sometimes perhaps we might not have the time to like invest or volunteer, but we might have that extra resource that definitely changes and transforms lives because we're all in this community and, and, and we are a part of it. Uh, whether we like it or not, right? We, we are one here in Orange County. And, and those are ways, but other ways that you can also get involved is contact your representative. You know, there's so many issues. I, I really encourage you to, to visit the different websites, visit even border crossings. You know, there was for a really long time that it was males who are trying to commit crime. And the reality, it's families. It's mother and children are coming to the U.S.-Mexico border seeking refuge. So again, uh, there's a lot of false information that was shared for many, many years. 
And we really want to make sure that you are able to really synthesize things and critically think about uh, what has taken place and how you can be part of change. Or even if you want to perhaps do an educational program for you, uh, we're always able to make that happen through Zoom, where we can share information, uh, share articles, have a conversation, discuss policies, um, and really break down about the just the systems in place, especially related to immigration, that are unjust and create even more marginalization in our country. So those are some of the ways. So when the pandemic has dwindled down sufficiently, we're able to move out and around, maybe open up your house in Garden Grove, the World Relief House, and we can all sort of celebrate, we can all help out there, maybe. Yes, our World Relief Office, whether it's World Relief Southern California or the Modesto Office or Sacramento, I'm a a fan of the World Relief Southern California Office because that's where I work. Um, But, uh, you know, any of our World Relief Offices are always your home. Um, Please feel free to stop by. Unfortunately, again, many of them are closed right now because of that pandemic. But after this pandemic, I think uh, it is important to celebrate, right? Celebration is part of healing. And we welcome you. We want you to come. We want you to ask questions. We firmly believe that there's no such thing as a stupid question, especially when it comes to immigration, because immigration law is just so difficult. Um, And so changeable. And and it changes every day, like you change your socks. So we want to make sure that um, you ask those questions and those hard questions. And I think oftentimes something that we've I think we've seen in in the last few years is people are afraid to ask questions, right? And they're afraid because they feel like they might be shut down or because they might ask a question that they might be seen as progressive or leftist. And the reality is immigration is not a leftist or progressive issue. I think it's an issue of, of humanity. And it's something that we should really dig into and be more educated about because the truth is it really impacts us all. Uh, we see it with this pandemic. You know, Orange County has the highest number of people infected. Many of them are probably your neighbors or the community that you live nearby, right? And unfortunately, many of them have lost friends, relatives, family members, right? And this could have probably been prevented. Maybe we couldn't prevent the pandemic, but we could have prevented the number of people who have passed away if access to healthcare was made available, preventative care was available, right? If opportunity for, for higher advancement uh, where people weren't homeless um, and, and had access to running water, right? That's interesting, right? That even in the United States, people might not have access to running water because they might not have a home. Like all of those things that are preventive measures to treat a pandemic or to prevent a, a pandemic from taking over a family or killing someone, like those are things that could have been done. And guess what? They weren't done. And instead of this administration really uh, nailing that, actually they did the other way around. They 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 they. took a different approach and and pretended it it wasn't as bad as it as it really is and so those are all things we can do and so i encourage you to get involved i encourage you to be informed and to really really analyze anything that is being shared including the information i just gave you because it is important to make sure that we hear the truth and nothing but the truth so i really want to thank you so much jose serrano for being on ask a leader today this has been such a pleasure with all the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Claudia. And thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, Happy holidays to everyone. Uh, Remember that we are all good Samaritans if we create that opportunity and if we allow our hearts to be open to something that is different. My guest was Jose Serrano, Associate Director of Immigration and Outreach, Senior Immigration Services Specialist, 
and Department of Justice fully accredited representative practicing law for the clients there at the World Relief Southern California office. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, artists like Craig Tyrrell will reflect on the creative process in the age of COVID and what is on the horizon for 2021 after we get our shots. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Let's everybody deck our faces with a mask. Happy holidays, all.